In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Poor Thomas. Poor, poor Thomas. If there was ever a disciple who ended up with a questionable or ruined reputation, it is St. Thomas. We have even given him the dubious nickname of Doubting Thomas. St. Thomas was a disciple, an apostle, a member of Jesus' close circle of friends. Later, after the events of today's gospel and the day of Pentecost, Christian history records him as being one of the most successful missionaries of the first century. He is credited with planting churches in the East and traveled as far as current-day India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and perhaps even the borderlands of China. So, this begs the question, why are we so unfair to St. Thomas? Let's take a little trip through the Gospels so we might understand what Thomas may have been thinking. A few chapters earlier in John's Gospel, Lazarus, who was undoubtedly known to the disciples, is ill and later dies. When Jesus announces that they are going to return to Judea, the disciples rebuke Jesus and say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? But, guess who's the first to commit? When, a few verses later, we hear, Let us also go, that we may die with him. To me, this sounds more like a sign of true courage true faith, to stand up to his friends while he maintains an unpopular position, even when that position is standing alongside Jesus. Moving forward in the gospel, Jesus begins his farewell discourse, a soliloquy of things to remember that he tells his disciples just hours before his crucifixion. Jesus is telling them to not be troubled that he is going to prepare a place for his disciples, and you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, ever the practical one, utterly misunderstands and says with a hint of desperation, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas certainly isn't doubting here. He's looking for answers to questions he has. Jesus' answer to Thomas is perhaps one of the most cherished lines in all of Scripture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This brings us to today's reading. Jesus is resurrected. He has appeared to Mary Magdalene. And as our gospel opens, we learn that it is evening of that same Easter day, and the disciples are gathered together behind a locked door because they are afraid. That is, all of the, the, all of the disciples except for Thomas. Where's Thomas? I mean, really, where is he? Had he abandoned the cause? Was he out looking for answers to the deep and hard questions that he was asking because of what all had just happened? 
Perhaps showing the courage that he had exhibited earlier, Thomas was already starting a new mission based on Jesus' teachings. We will never know. All we do know is that the disciples eventually make contact with Thomas before the week is finished, and they tell him what they have seen. And he makes an argument for empirical verification. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas, the courageous. Thomas, the practical. But here's where we get into trouble. We leap to judgments and false conclusions, and Thomas gets labeled the doubter. But let's think about this for a moment. Jesus had appeared to everyone but him. He had appeared to Mary Magdalene. He had been with the rest of the disciples. Did Thomas make this statement out of frustration? Did he regard himself as a second-class disciple? I mean, why hadn't he been given an invitation to the resurrection party? Unless I see. Mary had seen. The disciples had seen. Earlier in the same chapter, the beloved disciple had run to the tomb with Peter, and he had seen. The tomb was empty, and he believed. Thomas was asking for what everyone else around him had already experienced. Seeing Jesus in a resurrected body. Seeing Jesus alive again. He wanted to be able to rejoice about what he was seeing. How often are we like Thomas? I know I doubt things every day. And it isn't always about doubting God. I know I sometimes question things that I know are true, but for reasons that sometimes cannot be explained, I call those truths into question. For instance, do we doubt love and friendship from those who are closest to us? Perhaps we self-doubt. Am I really qualified or capable of performing the task set before me? Maybe it's depressing doubt. The kind you get by watching everyone around you succeed or get the job promotion that you want. And you wonder if your luck is just bad. And sometimes, even when we pray and read our Bibles and go to church week after week, we are like Thomas. And we wonder why we aren't seeing the same things everyone else seems to see. And so today is a week later. Thomas is with the other disciples. And 
Jesus comes. Does he reprimand Thomas for his doubt? No. Does he tell Thomas to get out of his sight because he is unworthy for his lack of faith? No. Does he tell Thomas to go to remedial classes led by Peter, who, by the way, had denied Jesus three times a little over a week ago before he can enjoy the benefits of being a Christian? No. He welcomes Thomas and gives Thomas that which he needs. And then he tells Thomas, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Nothing about doubting. Nothing about worthiness. Nothing even about remedial school. Just divine encouragement in lieu of empirical verification. And what Jesus did for Thomas, he does for you and for me. And for all the people outside these very walls who may never think to even darken the door of a church. To borrow a line from C.S. Lewis, God pursues us, even when we doubt, even when we are faithless, even when we choose not to believe, God pursues us. He encourages us and gives us what we need to be believing. And then he waits. He waits for us to receive to respond, to believe. Thomas's reaction is both shocking and explicit. My Lord and my God. In John's Gospel, Thomas is the only character to give this powerful and complete confession of faith. In fact, in all the Gospels, Thomas is the only person to link Jesus and God, Son and Father, Lord and God as one, one person. Thomas, having seen, not only believes, but professes his faith, professes his belief. This is the climax of the gospel. Remember the opening verse of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And remember how this chapter of John ends? These stories of Jesus are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's Thomas who puts it all together for us. One final thought. 
It was not Thomas touching Jesus that drew him to belief. It was Jesus' offering of himself. The invitation to Thomas to use whatever means necessary to come to faith. Jesus is not shaming Thomas. He's not being sarcastic with Thomas. Jesus is simply, as he did to others before, and as he does for us today, giving Thomas everything he needs for faith. In a few minutes, we will be given a small piece of bread. The prayer book calls this the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an invitation for us, here and now. And every time we come together to bless bread and to drink the cup, to have faith rather than to have unfaith. That faith allows us to experience the climax of the gospel. That faith encourages us to see ourselves united with him and his disciples and all those in every generation who have looked to Jesus in hope. Just as Thomas, who was with him, and his eyes were opened so that he no longer needed to touch Jesus' wounds, Jesus gives us something we need to see beyond our need for empirical verification. Jesus tells us this when he says to his followers, Blessed are those who have not seen, not seen Jesus physically here and now, and yet have come to believe. That blessed divine encouragement moves us by faith alone to take the final steps to see to believe and to exclaim my Lord and my God may we not be unbelieving but believing Amen